If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Hey friends, welcome back to the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. We are currently in a series on the book of Ezra. And so this particular series will last for 10 straight episodes and we'll do a summary of the book of Ezra and some commentary on the book. We'll also set up a new series after this that will be on the book of Nehemiah. So you'll get a chance to be able to see this part of history and also be able to see the application for us in the church today. We hope you enjoy it. If you have your Bibles open up to uh, Ezra chapter 7, that's where we're going to be tonight, Ezra chapter 7. And uh, if you've been with us for the last few Wednesdays, you know we've been studying through the book of Ezra and trying to get ready, uh, our kids ready anyway, for lads to leaders. We're going to be studying Nehemiah as we close up. I didn't realize it was going to take us this long, so we'll actually start Nehemiah as we're going to lads to leaders. So. Uh, I was going to try to time it where we did that um, about the same time, but this is a great little book, and it is often overlooked. I think I say every time I teach Ezra that I think he's one of the unsung heroes of the Bible. There's a lot of great things that he did that um, impact us today. Uh, Scholars believe that he helped in the canonization of the Old Testament scriptures, putting them in specific order. Uh, People think that he was probably the chronicler who basically tells the chronology of history in two books. It was actually one book in the Jewish Bible, but two, two books in our Bible, and it summarizes the history from uh, Adam all the way up until the time of Ezra. And so it's really neat uh, to study through his story, and now we get to really the heart of who he is and what he's going to do. And so for the next few chapters, uh, we're going to see more of his leadership pushed to the front, whereas previously we know he's been there, he's been writing letters, he's been uh, interpreting letters back from the king, and doing some things kind of behind the scenes. There's only a couple of times that we would have seen him up front and center. But for the rest of the book, uh, it's pretty clear that Ezra is the leader, the spiritual leader that the nation needed. And sometimes when we look for men to lead, uh, we're looking for people to lead us. We have a certain list of qualities and characteristics that we want. We want to see somebody who's a person of integrity. We want to see someone who is wise, someone who listens, uh, someone who uh, basically is able to deal with conflict and to resolve conflict very easily. Uh, if he's supposed to have wise people around him, that's another good thing about a leader is he can attract other good leaders. And so Ezra's going to embody those things and so much more as a spiritual leader for the house of Israel. And for the Jews that have come back, he is the person they need to stand up, speak up, and to share the message of hope with the nation. 
And remember, we've already seen that they came back, they started building the temple, uh, they started to build their houses, they're getting ready to start working on, on the rest of the wall and things like that that needed to be completed, but they've restored temple worship, and they have tried their very best uh, to get to a place where they could start growing. And it's kind of like, as Hunter mentioned a minute ago, whenever there's a storm and it takes a while to clean everything up, it may not look exactly like it did before, but you kind of roll with it, right? If you ever, I don't know if, how many of you through Sally, I know there are places even just here along by our building that there are giant fields that used to be trees. And so uh, scenery changes whenever there is a traumatic event like what happened to them. Uh, so for 70 years, they've been waiting, anticipating to come home. And usually when we get uh, an opportunity to go enjoy something or do something and we've prayed about it and we've waited on it, we just kind of want to jump in with both feet. And uh, I remember as a kid, my parents took us to uh, Padre Island. Does anybody know where that is? Galveston, Texas. Yeah, so Bonnie, I knew she'd know where that is. And so I had never been to the ocean before. I didn't know that that was the ocean, by the way. I always thought it was just the Gulf. I, you know, I wasn't, didn't very good in, in, uh, in geography among other things. But anyways, I, I went, went down there, and so my, my grandpa, we pull up to the, to the little parking area, and my brother and I just jumped out and went running. I mean, we've got tennis shoes on. We don't care. We want to get the water. It's like, no, 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 you got to slow down. First of all, the water's cold. You know, this was at Christmas time. We're like, we don't care. We're going to get down there and get in the water. And uh, so sometimes we get so excited about something, we just want to do it and do it quickly. And so what Ezra is going to do is kind of make sure that the people are ready spiritually. And in order to do that, he's got to prepare them for the devil. Because we forget that while we're trying to enjoy something, and something good and new and something exciting is happening, the devil's going to do all he can to thwart that. And so uh, that's going to happen as this plays out and also into the book of Nehemiah. So let's start in the first six verses. And I want to just real quickly recognize that Ezra being the, uh, the author of the book is going to give us uh, some genealogy, a little bit of his history. Now, I've said before, when we go through these genealogical names, um, I will pronounce them as best I can. If anybody else would like to volunteer and read them, that would be fine. But uh, sometimes in order to not mispronounce or to, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, hurt somebody's feelings, I will summarize a lot of this section. But in chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and the son of Huldah. It goes through his lineage. It says that, verse 6, Ezra came from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, when the law, or the Lord, God of Israel, had given. The king granted him all that his request, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, it says, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and uh, the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the servants of the year of King Artaxerxes. So why do you think, let me pause here and just kind of ask the question, why do you think it's important for Ezra to include his own genealogy in the story? Why would he put that in the book? Anybody have any ideas? Yes. Absolutely. Probably also is naming names that they have heard most of their lives. They had heard stories of his grandfather, uh, heard stories maybe of his father. So it gives a little bit of credence to the fact that he has a right to be a priest. He has been raised uh, in this, this scribal hood. Now, I always like to, to, to share that we are all scribes, right? You've heard me say this before, because we scribal 
when we first learned to write, okay? We're scribbling, you know. So we scribble. But that's what a scribe does, is write. So this is a guy who he says right off the bat is well-adjusted, well-educated in everything Bible. He had spent his life, or at least his family's lives up to him, had spent their time writing, memorizing, uh, and basically teaching the Word of God. It says the law of Moses. He's a scribe of the law of Moses. And so what they would do, and what he's going to have to do as they start growing here again in, in Jerusalem, is writing out the books. Now, I think it's understood that they did not in this time have a copy of the Old Testament scriptures as we have. And one of the reasons why is because a couple of these prophets haven't spoken yet. We know Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned, but their prophecies aren't included in, in Ezra. But there are just a handful, Malachi's another one, just a handful of prophets that are about to write their books. But what Ezra does is takes what they have at this point and begins to kind of compile them together. Whenever the law of Moses was kept, for instance, in the Ark of the Covenant, the five books were kept together. Each one of those books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were kept in their scroll inside of the Ark, so they were kept safe. And so when the scribes began to want to write Scripture, and it helps you with memorization, by the way. I tell students this all the time. They say, I get bored in class. I fall asleep. Take notes. It will help you 100%. I'm telling you, take notes. And if, if taking notes doesn't help, bring a crayon. I don't care. Stay awake. But whenever I take notes and I write, something happens in here. Where as you're writing it, you're having to think about the words. And when test time comes, if you've written it with your own hand, then it'll come out much easier. But if you just sit there and listen to a lecture uh, and don't engage or don't write, it's less likely that you'll have, unless you have a, just a photographic memory, um, of, of every word that is spoken. So writing is very important. And so what they would do is they would lay out the books of the law and they would write them. And there are a couple of ways that they did that, uh, but we talk about line upon line, precept upon precept, you know, every uh, jot and tittle, the, the punctuation marks, or at least the markings that help with inflection. Those things were kept very serious among the scribes. And if they misused or mis. Uh, um, they messed up. Their scribe, the whole scroll was to be burned. That's how serious they took writing the Word of God. You've probably heard before that whenever they would write the name of God, they had to go through a cleansing ritual to, to make sure that they were clean. And so we would assume that like in our day, that would be like going and washing your hands and, and, and putting on a new set of clothes and then washing your hands again and then setting down, getting your mind ready to just write the name of God. If we took God's name that seriously, it might change our lives. But in this day, they took scribal work extremely seriously. This was a full-time job. Now, Mordecai is another example when we get to Esther of someone who has this background. But there were men that were assigned to do nothing more than to just write and they wrote. They didn't write a lot of commentaries. They didn't write a lot of opinion pieces. They didn't write for newspapers. They wrote the Word of God. When I was a, uh, I guess I was in graduate school, Stephen Guy, one of our professors, challenged us to write an entire book by hand. We, put, we picked the Gospel of John. I wish I had picked 2 John, you know, or 3 John. 
But we picked the Gospel of John, and then we had to write a commentary on the Gospel of John. Mine's like 200 pages. You don't want to read it, but it's like 200 pages long, and it really did something as you begin to write. It it also is good to speak the Word of God. Uh, We have read the Bible, many of us have read the Bible several times through, but just one time in your life, instead of just reading it off the page, read it out loud. Uh, The Bible tells us hearing comes from the Word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So we need to hear God's Word. And if something happens when we don't just use the voice in our mind, we use our own voice to put those Scriptures into action. So reading the Bible out loud is a good thing. Writing Scripture is a good thing. And if you haven't done that, I challenge you to, to take some time, take a notebook, and write down verse by verse. That'd be a great gift to your grandkids at Christmas. As you know, you get the gospel of Matthew, you get the gospel of Mark, you get the gospel of Luke, you get the gospel of John out of grandma's handwriting. That to me would be, I mean, if you're looking for a gift, that's a great idea. Um, But writing the word of God, speaking the word of God puts the emphasis not on the individual, but upon the book itself, because the Bible is a living and breathing document. And so the God, God has inspired these men through the Holy Spirit to write these words. And so literally, as we open the pages, God's voice is leaping off of them. And that's what we're going to talk about Sunday morning, talk about hearing the gospel. Um, so this is, this, is, this is Ezra's way of saying, I am, I'm putting everything I have into this document. I'm putting my genealogy into it. I'm putting uh, historical evidence into it. I'm putting in... Uh, uh, political documents into it. He's, he's giving documents from all of the kings, from the governors, and, and really it's a great political thriller, really, if you look at it. It's really neat how he does it. So I believe that's why he did this, is to say the person who puts this book together is not just some average person. It's someone that is well-lettered, educated, and wise to be able to put it in, in this particular way. That makes sense? All right, so let's look at, I read verse 7, but the next few verses are going to talk about some of the things that Ezra does leading up to his teaching and, and, and so forth in, in the city of Jerusalem. So we know verse 7 says, some of the children of Israel, the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, all came. Verse 8, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. According to the good hand of his God upon him. Man, isn't that great? I like the way that's written. He's the good hand of the good God he's got. And then this verse, if you have a a pen, if you have a highlighter, uh, any kind of a marker at all, this is the verse to underline, to highlight, and to memorize. Verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He says, if I'm going to come to Israel, this is what I'm going to do. I promise I'm going to, I'm going to prepare my heart to seek God's will. I'm going to do God's will. And then I'm going to teach other people to do the same. And it's one of the reasons why he wrote these volumes of books is to show what happened in this particular time and how uh, basically he leaves a blueprint for what to do to bring revival to the nation again. And it all begins with gathering around the Word of God and making a commitment that as a church, if we want revival, 
then we are going to pray and we're going to seek his face. And whenever we read in the scriptures, we're supposed to do something, we're going to do it. And not only are we going to do it, we're going to teach other people that this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. He lays this out. It's one of the reasons why I wholeheartedly believe God gave us a big book like Acts in the New Testament. Because we have this blueprint on how to, if the church ever fades out, you know, fades out and starts to begin teaching all these false things, we can go back to the original blueprint, as we did in the Restoration Movement, and still happening today, by the way. People get a Bible and they read it and they say, hey, these people in Acts did this and this and this. Maybe we need to do the same thing. And so the blueprint is laid out there for the church. And so Ezra's giving us all of the items needed to revive the nation. Uh, I've always wondered, and maybe you can help me with this, what are some things that might have caused him to delay in not going with the first wave of people into Jerusalem? Anybody have an idea as to why uh, Ezra does not go with the first wave and stay? It's a long journey. It says it's you know good distance from there. Do what? Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a long journey. Maybe he wasn't ready for the travel. Right. Yeah, make sure everybody's getting there. What's that? Yeah. Right, yeah, there's a lot of people heading down there. Uh, maybe part of this is because in order to be, lack of a better term, the preacher, you got to have somewhere to preach. So they've had to build the temple, reinstitute the days of worship, and then they need somebody like Ezra who can come in and say, here's what the Bible says, and here's what we're supposed to do. Uh, and so it, was, it just seems that maybe his skill set wasn't necessary at the very first wave. Plus, uh, your grunt workers, you know, that come in and do the early labor. Now, I'm always amazed at that, that the, when I watch buildings go up, we'll see this down here at the hospital. I'm telling you, we're going to see it at the hospital. Is there's people out there, daylight to dark, they're digging, they're cutting, they're moving, they're shaking, you know, they're, they're out there. Those guys are out there in the cement trucks and the iron bars and the big jacks and the jackhammers and the cranes. And there's going to be some guy that walks out there with a tie on, stepping out with clean boots, that's going to pose for that picture, right? Y'all with me? The grunt workers that were there early, they don't make the front of the magazine. It's the architect, you know, that planned it and designed it, his nice air-conditioned office and his T-square, right? You know, he's, he's, he's laid it out and said, this is what we're going to do. But the workers that are there, that have done all this work and all this labor, are getting the ground ready, if you will, for this next move. And notice who also comes with Ezra. Did you see the list? Who's coming with him? Who's coming with him? More priests? Singers? Sounds to me like he's bringing the folks to start worship. It sounds to me like he has his first sermon ready for that Sunday. Uh, I know there are times that we've had big Sundays and we've, we've prepared and the preachers are preparing a lesson and say, I want to get ready for this Sunday morning and it's got to be a really good one. And um, if you've ever been a part of a building program where I, I have been a part of building programs, I've been a part of 50 year celebrations that churches have had. 
And so there's all this anticipation of people coming and, and, and people getting to see the new building and things like that. And Ezra's saying, it's time to get into the business of worship. He's going to seek God, he's going to do it, and he's going to then teach it. And that teaching is not just for the Israelites. It's not just for the Jews that have returned. The teaching that Ezra is going to do is, has specifically is supposed to impact the Jews, but it's also going to be heard by the Samaritans and others around, the part of the nation that have stayed behind. They're going to hear Ezra's message. And so this is, this is where, uh, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm chasing a rabbit here, but that's okay, just let me do it for a moment. Whenever we talk to people about worship, when we talk to people about why we worship here, you know, there are, uh, at least within the next few minutes, there are going to probably be a hundred places of houses of worship or whatever you want to call it in this, just in this vicinity. Okay. Why are you here? Why are we here? Why didn't we go somewhere else? Why aren't we worshiping somewhere else? Why are we in this building on this night doing this activity? It's because we have carefully search the scriptures. We want to be somewhere where the Bible is taught and practiced. And if you're going to converse with people that are not practicing religion like you do, you're going to need the word of God. And so Ezra is going to make his way into Jerusalem, holding the banner of the Lord high and the scriptures as the highest authority in the land. And he's going to begin writing down the law in Aramaic, which is important too, to begin to speak the language of the people of his day. And by doing that, there are going to be other people within that nation that are worshiping Mount Gerizim, like the Samaritans, and other pagans who had kind of taken over the land. And Ezra is going to be preaching and proclaiming the word of God in a very practical way. And there is no doubt that the revival that's going to come will impact not just the nation of the Jews, but the entire nation of Persia, the Medes and Persians. Everybody's going to get wind of what's happening in Jerusalem. And this revival, though I will say it's pretty short-lived, sadly, a lot of things happen as a result of it. Great prophets come out of this movement. But Ezra's who they needed at this time. They needed somebody to preach. They needed somebody to read the Word of God. Uh, and, and they needed somebody who had set his heart to seek God's will, do God's will, and then teach it to other people. That's the beauty of this great book. Uh, and if we want to bring revival to our families, we got to start on our knees. You know, we've got to, we've, if we want our children to go to heaven, they've got to see us grieving their sin and praying for their safety. Uh, same thing in the church. We've got to know that our, our, our leaders are believing in what they're teaching. It's not, there's no hypocrisy. It is we believe the message of the gospel and we want to share it with other people. We're thankful for the grace of God and we want to tell people about it. That's how, that's how people are impacted. And so Ezra, like you're right, Hazel, that's, that's what he did. He prepared his heart first. Before you can ever go teach somebody else, you got to know what you're doing. Um, we had a guy one time came to our house, tried to sell us a vacuum and... Uh, <laughs> He, bless his heart, I, I felt like at the end of it, I wanted to make notes for him. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not the best communicator, but I, I do believe in studying the trade of communication and learning new things. And he, bless his heart, he struggled, he struggled. And uh, I asked him, because he couldn't figure out how to work the thing. You know, he knew, and it's like, the, he's the salesman, he's the traveling salesman. And I'm like, can I get you a glass of water or something? He's pouring sweat. Yeah, I'll take a glass of water. 
And he's like, you're not going to buy anything, are you? I said, oh, no, 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 no. We're getting the free clean room, right? That's why, we, that's why we let you come in. And so he struggles a little bit, but he gets it all put up. And he's like, oh, this is hard because if I don't sell two a day, then it's not worth my effort. And I wanted to take him and say, well, here's a couple things you could do. First of all, practice more with the vacuum because if you struggle using it, I know I'm not going to be able to use it. Not like I do a lot of the vacuuming. But anyway, uh, we have that little robot, man. I love, I love my little Roomba. That's, that's Rosie. Remember the Jetsons? We, I turn Rosie on on the phone, and here she goes. But this, this guy, he didn't know how to use the item he was trying to sell. And so if we're going to convince people that heaven is real and that we at one point were lost in our sins and are saved by the grace of God, uh, they have to see it in our eyes, hear it with our words, and view it through our actions. And so he, Ezra went in. Nehemiah is going to do the same thing. His heart is broken for the people of Israel. He wants to go home. He wants to be among his family, his brethren. And so Ezra has made several travels, but this is going to be a big one. He's going to begin a great work uh, in, this, in this area. So then there's another letter that Ezra includes. And it says, this is a copy of the letter, verse 11, that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king, and by his and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regards to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and the gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Period. Did you notice how long that sentence was? Verse after verse after verse. You know what it tells me about that? That means that he's so excited, he can't help but keep putting comma, 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 comma. He knew all the precepts, all the statutes, all the teachings, and he is carefully... Now, this is the kind of guy you want over your, your taxes and your paperwork. He's got this OCD, you know, type. He's going to get it done. He's, gonna, he's organized. He's structured. He's, you know, it doesn't look like he's living out of the back of his van. You know, this is a guy who is working, he's serving, he's giving it the best he's got, and he says, King, you can trust me. You've got people with us. You've given us items. We're going to use it. We're going to use the money you've given us appropriated properly. And really, in a way, praising the king for the privilege of doing it. Now, I want you to notice something else, too, before we read the rest of the letter. He has said at least twice in this letter so far that it is your God and then it says, and you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may inquire, let me see, may, may uh, 
And you, Ezra, according to your God, given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who you know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let the judgment be executed speedily on him, where, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods and imprisonment. And so uh, Ezra begins to give this list of things that the king's given him, appropriated him to use. And so the king has trusted him that he's going to use it properly. And Ezra does use it properly. And that's a great thing to know that you can trust someone in his appointment anyway, as a leader of the people, that he is just as valuable as an asset as the gold and silver that traveled with them. Sometimes we do appropriate um, success with numbers or success with buildings or success with, with power, but there is a lot to be said of influence. Influence. And, and that's something that Ezra has over the people. He is a spiritual man. They know he's a spiritual man. He's well-educated, but he loves the Lord. And, of course, he and the king both share this vision of the Jews getting back to where they were supposed to be, living in the land that God had given them. And so it's a great relationship between both Ezra and the king and, obviously, the other magistrates and so forth that are involved. But Ezra is the best man for the job. Now, he also addresses taxes here. Now, one of the things the king has told him to tell the people is they're not supposed to set a tax on any of the items that are used. Do you have an idea as to why that may be the case? Yeah, they're tax exempt because they're nonprofit. That's it. That's the best answer. I'm going to drop the mic. That was awesome. Yeah, they haven't had time to really adjust to the job, to the land to be able to build and grow and have a business. And I think Ezra wouldn't have went if they had told him, you're going to have to execute Persian law. He said, I am educated in the law of God, and I will do that. And this is, this is not long before, just a few hundred years before, they began to build a government system. And I know sometimes we get bored talking about politics. Some people get really excited about it, but most of us... Probably we, we get watered down in all the details of it, but what Ezra is going to be in charge of is setting up, like you said, a local government that is answering to what law? To the law of God, which means he's saying, I want the Levites, I want the priests to be able to, and judges, magistrates, so forth, to use your law, the law of God, to execute punishments. And he says, whatever the punishment may be, whether it be death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment, this sets the tone for where we come to the story of Christ in the Gospels. There is clearly a set of government in place that the Jews used. We will use the term synagogue. That's the, basically the local form of religious uh, education, worship, and political um, there would be judges, the elders would sit at the city gates and so forth. They're a part of that ruling body. In order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least three that are in the city that could rule as elders. But then when you come to Jerusalem, they're going to set up, uh, let's consider for a moment, it's kind of crude, but we'll use it as an example, that the synagogue was like the local state government or the city government. And so what they did eventually was they said, well, we need some of these magistrates and judges or leaders of the people to represent a larger body in Jerusalem, that is the Sanhedrin, 
Okay, that's where they, they put all of the, 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 the higher elders. Some of them were there for political reasons. In fact, I would argue that by the last hundred years before Christ, even the high priest position was a political position. But they formed a body of government that allowed them to operate under the law of Moses while under the nose of the Edomite king, King Herod, who is the king of the territory, and under the nose of Pilate, who's the governor, the state governor of the overall government, which is the Roman, uh, the Roman government. And so what this does is, while Caesar is overall, they allowed Herod, he allowed Pilate as the governor, he allowed Herod as the local king, tribal king, and then he allowed the synagogue of the Jews to execute punishments as they see fit, with one small exception and that was at this time, by we see the synagogue in power and the synagogues in power, the local government, the Roman governor said you cannot put someone to death. That's the reason why they needed to take Jesus through the process, the legal process. They imprisoned him. They take him to, uh, to Pilate. Pilate says send him to Herod. He's really the local king. Herod ends up sending him back to Pilate. Pilate then has to deal with it. And he says, what are you? You're local. Why don't you handle it in your own courts? Let your own magistrates and judges. And they say, no, we're seeking the death penalty. And he says, well, I haven't seen anything. I've washed my hands, you know. If you want to crucify him, go ahead. And that's what they end up doing. So Jesus goes through at least six illegal trials. It's a completely misuse of justice. Every person along that line, maybe even Pilate himself, who's recalled some years after his encounter with Jesus, every single court process was illegal. It was done without proper representation. He was imprisoned for something that he did not do. He was accused of something he did not commit. They could not even get witnesses to testify in order of what he had said. So they couldn't even come up with two guys that could get their stories straight. There is absolutely no reason why Jesus should have been scourged or should have been imprisoned to the point of then being hung on a cross. There's no way. But that political process, the Jews had learned how to work the system. And the Jews worked that system, whereas here they're going to need it to get structured government. By the time of Jesus, they had abused it. In fact, to me, there's two things that the Pharisees did as a governing body that makes my skin crawl. One of them is, the gospel writers say that they speak to Caesar, or speak to Pilate of Caesar, and they say, we have no king but Caesar. They're saying, we want to recognize Caesar as our king. Caesar was a god to the people. His inscription was on the coin that they used. And here you've got these Pharisees and Sadducees praying every day that the Messiah will come, and he's standing right in front of them, and they said, we'll kill that one, we'll take the next one. And it doesn't work like that. The second thing is, when they're challenged to choose between Barabbas and Jesus, they obviously choose Barabbas to be set free and Jesus to be crucified. In that, they say this, this is the one that's worst of all, May his blood be upon us and our children. They said, we know he's an innocent man, but we want him to die. And if there's any punishment that's going to come from this, we'll take it. And also our children will take the burden of it. And so the corruption by the time of Christ in the political powers from, from Rome to, to then to Pilate and then to Herod and then on down to the Pharisees and the high priests Annas and Caiaphas, uh, it was ridiculous, but at this point, they're just getting started, and sometimes you can give people a little too much rope, and that may be 
part of the problem here is that the king gives them basically uh, reign over their whole property. Now, we're glad if we're sitting here, we're, going, we're a Jew, we're going, man, this is awesome, this is awesome. But there weren't enough checks and balances. And when you don't have men like Ezra who prepare their hearts to do the will of God, and they get uh, lazy, and they get apathetic, they forget where they came from. And then, unfortunately, the political leanings and the power and the pride uh, begins to overcome the leaders. Uh, so that's kind of a quick run-through of the history from the political environment they're building here to the time of Christ. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. In fact, I, I, I think it would be, I wouldn't spend a whole sermon on it, but maybe a class or something, looking at how the political powers of the Sadducees and Pharisees flipped depending on their elections, just like our elections. One time somebody's in power, and then the next time he gets in power, he's going to, I'm going to erase everything he did. And we elect somebody from that party. Well, I'm going to erase everything he did. And, you know, feel like we got to get up in there. Uncle Sam needs to get up there and knock some heads. You know, y'all need to learn to get along in here. But that's, that's what happens. In fact, one of the reasons why the Sanhedrin got out of control is they had a large governing body, Sadducees, that were in power too long. And so that begins a... A very stiff conflict between them. It actually splintered off into other groups because they had the Zealots and the Herodians uh, splintering off of those two as well. And then you have the Sychars, which are the assassins. They're so conservative, they'll kill you in the street if you disagree with them. That's how bad the political environment had gotten. The Jews were killing other Jews in the street. Probably how Barsabbas got to his, you know, Barabbas, sorry, Barabbas got to his position uh, in prison. All right, any, any thoughts about that to verse 26? All right, let's read the rest. Uh, this is where we see God being exalted on high. After the letter is written, of course, the, the, the king wants to make sure that all the people hear the word. Uh, Ezra pens it, gets it out there. They're in agreement, the king and Ezra both, that God is in charge. Blessed be, verse 27, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. There's two hearts mentioned in this text, Ezra's and the king's, and they were both the same. To beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and to extend mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then he's going to give the genealogy of these guys who go with him, and then by the last chapter, he's going to take account of those who had stayed, of those that were all there from the various trips they made back and forth from Babylon to Jerusalem. So the work is, the blessings given by God, the work is attributed to God, and there's no way this all could have fell into place without God making it happen, especially the fact that whenever several hands have changed from Nebuchadnezzar to Artaxerxes, several different kings have been in power, and they just so happen to still have all that gold and all the furnishings. Don't you think that's amazing from the temple? Um, now, a lot of times we'll see in uh, nations, whenever a new ruling power comes in, especially if it has another religious bend to it, they will destroy foundations and, and buildings, and they will destroy uh, you know, ancient architecture, and they have no care whatsoever to the historical value of certain things. They will just, they'll tear stuff up, tear it down. And so, for whatever reason, they didn't do that with the holy 
items from the temple. And so they get to bring those back for worship. And I think, imagine what it would be like. The reason why I think God gives us stories is to put ourselves in the story. Imagine what it would be like if you're one of those grunt workers that went with the first wave and you have put walls back up and you've cried because it looks so terrible and you've heard the Samaritans running, at, running their mouths and you've even got the Arabs coming around running their mouths. And here comes this wave of singers. Now, what do singers do? Huh? That's right. In fact... In the book of Psalms, there's a section of Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascents. And these are the songs they began to sing at the bottom of the mountain at Mount Zion, all the way up to the top of the mountain. And they would end with the psalm at the very top of the mountain going into worship. And so I picture if they know the songs, which they probably did, they're probably singing on their way. There's going to be a great, uh, not only a revival, but a reunion of families in this moment, and they get to see them coming off the distance. Just about any movie you've seen where the men have come first and work and build and so forth, and then comes the wave with the wives and the children, you know, and, and there they are. I'll tell you, I, I still get misty-eyed whenever I watch these uh, soldiers come home, those surprise videos, you know. I don't even know these, but I mean, some of them, oh, man, waterworks. Get me the box of Kleenexes, because I just, yo, whoo, gets me. So sometimes when you see people that have been gone for so long, you just... Oh, you can't wait to see them. So as they're making their way to Jerusalem, the singers are there and the, and the priests are there. And you know it's about to be the best worship service you've ever experienced. And it will be the first great service in this temple that they're rebuilding. And it's going to be composed of a worship that is straight from Scripture. Because Ezra has set his heart to do it. And he is ready to teach them. And he's going to read to them. He's going to quote Scripture. He's going to read Scripture. He's going to empower them to use the Scriptures to do the will of God, not just at the temple, but throughout the land of Jerusalem. So a lot of exciting things are happening, but it's, it's that anticipation, that eagerness and just like we might have for a homecoming Sunday, or for uh, if we've ever, if you've ever been a part of a church that builds a building, you know, and you come in that first Sunday, it's pretty exciting. And they imagine they're back on the holy ground God gave their people, building on the exact foundation that David and Solomon had built, and they're going to sing the songs that David wrote to be sung in the temple, and those that are a part of the same genealogy of singers that sang in the original temple, generation after generation after generation, are now going to be singing in the new temple. So it's, it's don't, don't, don't let that pass. It's exciting, okay? I'm not trying to make it sound exciting. It was exciting. It was pretty neat to experience something like this. What else did you notice in these last few verses about the, the coming of the worship and the worshipers? You ever been a part of a service before? I know this was a problem when I was in high school. We didn't have really a designated song leader, and so when we would have a devotional, we'd all sit around a circle, and they'd say, who would like to lead a song? You know, There's always that awkwardness. We don't do that much anymore. I remember when I first got here in 2018, we, we, Ken would come up here and he'd put a board, and we'd write a bunch of songs on there. And sometimes we'd have five or six song leaders. Sometimes we'd have two Song leaders, we'd all just sit there and wait. You going next? You going? You go, you're not going? I'm going. You going? You going? I'm going. You going? I'll go after you. You go. And then, oh, he sang the song I wanted. It's kind of that anticipation. 
These men have been doing nothing but think about worship the whole trip. That's all they have focused on. This ought to be us, you know, white-knuckled in the car, can't wait to get to worship. You know, we just, oh, this is awesome. We're just so excited to get to worship. And they would have brought that energy from Babylon. We're going home. It's a homecoming. It's going to be a revival. It's a reunion. Ezra's going to be preaching Sunday. Isn't this great? They come back. They're so excited for this period of worship. And they do, they do it. CYC has a big number. They just did this last week. Exposure has a pretty good number. They sing in the rotunda. Uh, if you've ever been in an environment like that, it gets you. I mean, worship ought to be an experience where we feel really good about being able to praise God. And given it all we've got, we put our heart into our songs, we put our, our heart into our reading and studying and prayer, we really focus on communion, and that begins a long time before we get to this building. Um, we, we have those moments where we, you know, we may have had a really rough week, and we come in and we've got some stuff on our mind, and we got to learn to lay that aside. You know, I thought about maybe one day having a bucket out there as we come in. You're not going to throw anything physically in it, but, you know, lay your burdens here at the door. Come in and worship. It's an empty bucket. You just physically, you know, just drop it. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I, t- I taught my kids this. I said, as you read the Bible, and this is, this is just a way that I taught them how to, to read and understand and memorize Scripture, is to imagine taking that verse of Scripture and putting it into your mind, just picking it off the page and putting it here. And then taking it and putting it on your lips. You're going to put the Word of God on your lips. You're going to speak the Word of God. Sometimes a visual reminder. So it would be good maybe if we had a basket, even at our houses when we walk in the door. I say, I don't know what you had, what your workday was like, but leave it there. You know, just drop it and let's come in and focus on what's really most important. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.